I want to start today where Brian ended. And Brian, I forget how he described it. He said he had a silly or stupid illustration um, to end last week. And sometimes as a pastor and a teacher, you know, you know, silly and stupid illustrations end up being some of the best illustrations ever. And if you were here, he talked about chicken. And he, I don't know if he called us all chickens or referred to us as chickens, but he tried to highlight what it means to be marinated. And that chicken is so much better being marinated. And that is so true. And I've been thinking about that illustration and wondering, have, have I been taking my time to marinate on the love of God and how much God loves me. And so it was a great illustration, but it's a great illustration to explain where we're going today as well. Because marination is so important. It keeps the, the meat and the food moist and flavorful and tasteful. Actually, I, I read that when you marinate stuff, it actually it creates better health of the food. And being here, I, I, I love coming here to Kansas City. Everybody loves to barbecue and grill. I wish I had that gift. I don't have that gift. But people around here love it. But one of the things I've noticed is there's sort of a competition going on. Different people think that they know how to marinate best. And they got their way of marinating things. And this barbecue and this, uh, I don't even know all the sauces. And again, the seasonings and all that, but they believe they know how to marinate best, and they love to marinate. And I'm here to tell you, somebody else loves to marinate, and that's God, and that's Jesus Christ, and that's the Holy Spirit. And what Brian started with, I want to take it deeper, because the book of Ephesians is all about marination. And you know, you marinate food to ultimately to eat it, to consume it, to enjoy it. And Ephesians is a constitution, as I mentioned. It's, it's sort of the way we live as Christians and as a church. And so as we've been going through this Made for More series, Ephesians 1, just, it just starts off so great that we've been blessed in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And the first thing what we learned, it's not about more effort when it comes to following Christ. It's about more grace. And the more we focus in on Jesus and his fullness and his goodness and his mercies and the grace that he wants to bestow upon us, our lives are better. There's nothing better than grace. And if you're one who isn't a Christian yet and you're trying to figure out Christianity, there, there's no reason to not be a Christian. Who wouldn't want grace? Who wouldn't want forgiveness? Who wouldn't want to be blessed? Who wouldn't want to be loved unconditionally? Who wouldn't want the Holy Spirit, God himself, to indwell us? It's so awesome. And that's chapter one. Chapter two is we are more than just volunteers. We're masterpieces. We're God's poem. We're created by God. We're a work of art. And what Paul wants us to know that in Christ... And in his workmanship, we were created to do good works, which are not just goody-two-shoe works. They're beautiful works. They're attractive works. They're works that make a difference in other people's lives. And we're encouraged to live that out, where we live and where we work and where we play and where we study. And we're to take Christ into the community 
and into our homes and into our workplaces and into our schools. And it's, it's life-changing. But the third marination, which Brian talked about last week, is so important. It's about the marination of God's love and how much God loves us. And Brian talked about the height and the depth and the width and the breadth and just God's love for us as, as a Christ follower is so great. And I think one of the reasons, you know, Brian refers to himself sometimes as be love. And we, we've talked, he's talked about all these messages that sometimes he has to give that focus in on Ephesians 3 and the love of God. And we've had conversations and there are so many here and so many youth and so many students today that doubt that God loves them, even as Christians. And that just breaks my heart. But we need to marinate on the fact that God loves you unconditionally. And there is nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we need to marinate on that. We need to marinate on more grace more masterpiece, and more love. But I'm here to say, if we just marinate all day, it's useless. It's a waste of time. There's no point in marinating meat that you're not going to eat and enjoy and invite friends and say, I want you to be a part of this feast that we're going to celebrate. Ephesians is written in a very simple way. The first, the first half of the book is just pure doctrine, pure truth, pure marination. But chapters 4, 5, and 6 is all about playing it out, enjoying it, living it out, making a difference. There's only one command in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it's found in chapter 2, verse 11. And I'm just going to read it to you, he says, therefore, remember at one time you were without Christ. When I went to seminary, um, I, I sort of studied in a closet, and um, it was just because it was just Michelle and I, we had a sunroom, and it was in Dallas, Texas, we had a sunroom, and there was a closet, and I just loved to go in that closet and study, okay? Um, I would come out of the closet, but not that way, but uh, I would come out of the closet every once in a while. But I, I, in my closet, I had, and again, I loved Greek, and we were always studying Greek, and I had this verse, Ephesians 2, and it's verse 2, verse 13, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you or who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I had that up in my office, and, and I wrote it out in Greek because I wanted to remember that at one time... I was far from Christ, and now my life had been changed. One time in high school, I, you know, I was a drinking fool. But now, no, I wasn't getting high and drunk on alcohol. I was getting drunk on God and his word and my relationship with him. At one time, my mouth was so foul, it was disgusting, and I would say things, and I'm just like, and this is as a Christian. I'm like, what am I talking about? And I needed to remember that Christ came along and changed my vocabulary. He didn't help my grammar any, but he changed my vocabulary. And that, yes, occasionally I still say something that is foul and stupid, but God changed my mouth. 
one of the things when you marinate, you need to remember. You need to remember your life without Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ changes your life. And if there is no memory, maybe the reality is you've never embraced Jesus Christ. Or you've embraced Jesus Christ, but you haven't had somebody come alongside you and say, this is how you live it out. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, there's a radical change. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, suddenly there's 40, 40 imperatives or 40 commands, 40 exhortations saying, okay, the time of being marinated is over. Your time on the grill is over. Now the, this is time to, to enjoy. And the reason we're marinated is not... And, and we in our Western world, we have, have made it all about accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. We've made it personal. But the Constitution that Paul wrote here in Ephesians was never personal. It was about the body of Christ. It was about the church, the ecclesia that we've been talking about, that, that Christ was leaving to, to influence the world. Another way to, to illustrate this so you can catch it, when we lived in uh, different places, but we used to love to go to Chili's, and I know there's a Chili's in Lee Summit, don't get there too often, but I think it's at Chili's, they have a lava cake, and I'm talking about all this food, and a few weeks ago I said I'm dieting, I am moving in the right direction, just so everybody knows, okay? Started at, just so I'd be accountable, I started at like 2.53, but I'm a big boy, that's my excuse. But then now I'm down to 247. I, I got to get going still, but I'm heading in the right direction. But I want to talk about lava cakes. Has anybody ever had the lava cake at Chili's? Oh, whew. It's good. Chocolate cake, ice cream, fudge. There are three levels to that lava cake. And what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians is that the lava cake is the fullness of Jesus Christ. It's the fullness of God. And in Ephesians 1, when we learned about more grace and more Jesus, we learned what the chocolate cake was all about. That Jesus Christ and more Jesus, and Jesus is the head of the church, he's on the throne of all authorities and powers. And what he is trying to do is he's trying to fill the universe with the fullness of God with the fullness of Jesus Christ, with the fullness of his grace and his love and his mercy. And he's doing it through us in our submission to Jesus Christ. We are to saturate every place we go and we are. We're to saturate it with the love of God and more Jesus. It's, it's the universal fullness. What Brian talked about last week is individual, the believer's fullness. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians 3 is we need to come to understanding that Christ loves us so much, he just wants to fill us beyond what we can even think or imagine with his love. And what we will see in Ephesians chapter 4, 
So it moves from universal fullness, the chocolate, the ice cream, is the individual believer's fullness. But in Ephesians 4, the hot fudge over it all is the fullness of Christ. It is the fullness of the body of Christ. It is the fullness of the church. Church, amen, we're the hot fudge. We are the hot fudge that is going to make everybody smile and be so delighted. But it doesn't work if we just want to marinate in our knowledge and in our identity. Again, we're talking about we need to be more. But we got to do more. we got to go more. And if we're just going to, to marinate in that and not, we're never going to get to the fullness of Christ. So notice in Ephesians 4.1, Ephesians 4.1, he says, I therefore, and Paul, he's being personal, but he's challenging the body of Christ now. He's talking about his identity, a prisoner for the Lord. And there's a lot I can do there, but we're going to jump into more of the fullness of Christ. But he considers himself in chains. His bondage is for Jesus Christ and for the church that we're going to see here that that he wants to establish. He says, I urge you to walk, to live, how you act, how you think, how you breathe, how you interact with people. You're to do that in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received. We've talked in this series, Made for More, that there is an individual calling, but there is a church calling. Paul is moving now away from an individual calling, and I know what it means to be called. God has called me many places. He's called me to Dallas, Texas. He's called me to Forney, Texas. He's called me to San Diego. He's called me to El Centro in California. He's called me. To Elyria, Ohio. He's called me in various places in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's called me here. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's saying that we as a church have a calling. The question on the table, are we going to live worthy of the calling we have as a church? And are we going to be obedient to what God is telling us in these remaining verses? And are we going to put it into practice? Now before we jump to verse 7, I want to start a couple of weeks ago what we were talking about. And so you got to have a grasp of this. We're more than volunteers. We're more than just people filling a pew. We're more than people just in the seats. We're more than that as believers in Christ. We are God's masterpiece. We have been created in Christ Jesus. you got to see this for the purpose. We have purpose and meaning and significance to do, again, good works or beautiful works or attractive works. We're the lava cake for the community, which God prepared in advance or beforehand so that we should Walk. We should live in it. We should go. And now he is expanding on this. See, Paul, he's sort of a little bit like maybe me this morning. He gets so excited. 
You know, I mentioned before, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is just one sentence, and it's a big run-on sentence. He would have gotten an F here at school, run-on, you know? I used to, when I was a kid, it was run-on, you know, R's all over the place. It's like, oh, teacher, come on. Who cares if it's a run-on? Paul did it. Can I do it? Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 is a run-on, one long sentence. We're going to see another long sentence. He's so excited. But he stops right here. We need to see this first. It's Ephesians 4, verse 7. It's a verse that he repeats. Peter repeats it. And every believer, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, by that I mean if you understand that you can't have a relationship with your heavenly Father except through Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, and his resurrection. But if you have believed in that, something happens. You're given the Holy Spirit. You're adopted into God's family. You are justified. You, there's so many things. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. But notice this. Paul says this over and over again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us got a spiritual gift. Now, some of you may say, well, I'm a little ignorant about spiritual gifts. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. Throughout church history, even going back to the day of Paul, there has been ignorance or a lack of understanding of what a spiritual gift is. But I'm here to tell you, if you are a Christian at 550 or 105, you have a gift. And the question is, are you using that gift? Are you putting it into practice? Each one. There is not one person who's accepted Jesus Christ and believes in Jesus Christ sitting in this room or who's homesick today or on vacation that doesn't have a gift. Each one has a gift. It's a spiritual gift. And there is no bragging going on. There's no bragging because what God did, he knew what the church needed. Specifically, he knew what Harrisonville Community Church needed. And he says, I'm going to bless them, each person in there with a spiritual gift. Some of us have more than one, but he's going to bless with a spiritual gift. And it's according to the measure of grace. It's like Christ knows us so well because he loves us so much. He's like, I'm going to give you exactly what you need to make a difference in the world. We started basketball. We've had a bunch of snow days. And, and I'm just loving coaching this new uh, basketball team. And, and we started. And we actually had a pretty good game. And one of the things I, I learned right away whenever I coach basketball, everybody's got a different level of playing skill when it comes to basketball. But, you know, there, there's, there's this one kid, maybe not the most talented or gifted, and he gets very distracted a lot. But I was so happy when he scored. He got a rebound, and he put it in, and he scored in two points. And you should have seen the smile on his face. You know, you, if you watch the young kids, they start to do that, woohoo, you know? And they run down the field. Everybody should. And what I noticed is one of the players that is scoring more points, he just is like, yeah, this is his business. You know, I'm going in scoring, and... That's just the way I'm meant to be. I'm meant to score a lot of points, you know? Just kept on going. I don't care where you're at and how you view yourself. You have a gift by God. 
Now, the Bible is very clear on this. There's some passages that you can look at. Basically, you need to remember the number 12 and the number 4. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and this passage in Ephesians 4. Now, notice, each one has been given a gift. Now, 1 Peter in chapter 4, he says that you've been given a gift and you're like a funnel. God's grace flows through you as you use your gift and you minister God's grace to one another. Well, what an awesome picture. God not only gives us grace, he allows us to be the salt and pepper shaker of grace in other people's lives. And he says that there's two primary gifts, teaching gifts, service gifts. And again, in 1 Corinthians 12, there's all the charismatic gifts or what we would call sign gifts. And for the sake of just clarity, I'm focusing in on what what we would call kind of service gifts or teaching gifts. And so one of you has one of these gifts or more, a teaching gift, a prophecy gift, an encouragement gift, exhortation. I put leadership in both categories because everybody's different. Again, the measure of God's grace is different. And how we look at this. But notice the service gifts, gifts, helps, and administration, mercy, and giving and leadership. That's what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. And then he does something totally amazing. He talks about the ascension and descension. And if I had more time, I will talk about that. But i got to skip over it. But it was very interesting. Um, Aaron said... Hey, church, the resurrected king singing over us, you know. And we had two clops, you know. Like, okay. You know, but we should all applaud it. We need to understand the resurrected king who has ascended. It's very important to us as the life of the church because that is victory. That is overwhelming um, victory and success. And because of who he is, As the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the resurrected King, you know, we're seated with him in the heavenly places and we're placed up there. But we have been gifted by God with this ascension. And then it leads to this verse, Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. And notice, there is a transition. And it's not just me Um, You can look at commentaries. We're no longer talking about spiritual gifts. I'll explain this real clearly in a little bit, hopefully. Now we're talking about gifted individuals. He's given the church, some people call it the five Q, the five styles, the five roles. These aren't offices. These aren't jobs you hold. This is the, the way... We as a church need to operate and, again, to be that lava cake in our community. And some of your translations just goes apostles, prophets, and those things. I I think the best way to interpret it is to be an apostle, to be a prophet, to be an evangelist, to be a teacher, to be a shepherd. It's implying that You're given as a gifted individual to the church for a specific purpose. And if you're not fulfilling that purpose, 
the church can't ever come close to the fullness of God. So a couple of weeks ago, I started down this journey. I want to do it one more time to help us understand, because some of those you're like, whew, I don't know if I want to be an apostle. I don't know if I want to be a prophet, evangelist. No way, Jose. Shepherd, teacher, all that's confusing. And many have gone before me because, again, a lot of churches are doing this made-for-more series. They're trying to get more people to understand how God has wired them and gifted them in the body of Christ. But an apostle, that, that is someone who is sent by God. And if you look at it, Jesus Christ is all of these. Jesus Christ is an apostle. He was sent by God himself on a mission to go and start something new. So uh, the apostle, th th that's a pioneer, th that's an entrepreneur. In our day and age, we talk about being church planters or someone who keeps starting new things and new ways. And every church needs an apostle. Actually needs multiple apostles to start new things. Otherwise, you get stuck in a rut. Prophets, again, Jesus Christ was a prophet. You know, we, we think about Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these prophets. There were men who, who heard the word of God and then communicated the word of God in such a way that there was justice and truth. A lot of times today they talk about prophets or ones that, that go in and they question and they challenge and they they hold us to make sure that justice is happening and everybody's being treated equally. There's evangelists. There's the people that recruit. There's the people that got the gift of woo and draw people in. There's salesmen and, and they talk to people and they recruit them, not to the church, but to a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is, we'll see, it's going to be the fullness of the church. Shepherds, they care, they nurture, and there's a misunderstanding today on what actually the word shepherd means. We think just the caring side and the nurturing side, but actually the word shepherd was a leader. They would have a staff, and they would use that rod and the staff for what? Just to, hey, hello, I'm going to care for you. No, to lead people, to, to, to eat the things they need to eat so that they'll be healthy and they'll get their exercise. But they care and they nurture and they support and they come along, those who are broken and hurting. And obviously Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. And then there is the teacher, the explainer, the clarifier. Make sure everything is clear and orderly. They create systems in the church, ideas in the church, so concepts so that people can get on the same page because we're going to see unity is so important. People have to clarify what we're doing and why we're doing it and make sure we're on the same page. But the verse doesn't end there. Notice what it says. It says, to equip the saints, again, never referred to as a sinner. You're, if you're a believer, you're referred to as a saint. Someone set apart by God with a special purpose in life. That's what a saint is. Called to live a holy and blameless life. 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Again, the church is so confused today. And I'm not just saying our church, the church in general, especially the church in America. You see, when you look at this list, and I have to say, as a pastor, I'm not in this list. In fact, do a word study. The word pastor doesn't even show up in the New Testament. Paul isn't thinking about even elders here, deacons, a leadership structure, hierarchy. He's thinking about ministry. And he's saying these people, want these, these apests, as we'll call it, they are to equip the saints so that they will do ministry. So if you are a church planter by nature or you start things new, you need to encourage other people to be church planting. If you're about justice and truth and declaring God's word in a bold fashion, you got to equip others to do that as well. If you're a care group leader, you just don't care for your own group. You teach other people how you care for them and shepherd them. What I love is, again, some people smarter than me have looked at this, and I don't know if we'll be able to see this or not, but it talks about the ministry of Christ, the body of Christ, and the fullness of Christ. And so you may say, why is it saying mox, box, and fox? Because the X is for the Greek word, and it makes Christ, and so it's talking about the ministry of Christ, that's the mox, the body of Christ which is what we're talking about today and then the fullness of Christ. So let me illustrate this. This is the body of Christ. This is the way it works. The apest is the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. Again, he ascended and he gave gifts of individuals to the church. These apest, okay? You can go around and tell people, hey, I'm a pest, you know, and it'd be really exciting, okay? But you better figure out which one you are. But anyways, he gave these gifts, and then he, guess what he does? He pours it into the body of Christ, and he does it really full, okay? Yes, I dripped over, okay? I overflowed it. Christ, not a pastor, Christ is pouring in gifts into the body of Christ. And he's saying to the body of Christ, it is now your calling to function in the way that God has gifted you. And get this, you know those spiritual gifts we talked about earlier? An apostle has a certain spiritual gift on how they will apostle. A prophet has a certain spiritual gift on how they will prophet. An evangelist has a certain spiritual gift on how they will evangelize. God thought of everything so that everybody can be unique and different and make an impact. So Christ does this body of Christ... And guess what? Again, this is the marination. It does no good for the fullness of Christ if there is not action and activity. And so you take the body of Christ and you spill it all over the place, which is good because Christ wants to saturate the whole world, okay? You take the fullness of Christ. 
That's what everybody's dying for. The fullness of Christ. Marriages restored. People coming to Christ. People being healed. Churches that are making a difference in their community, in their world. But it's not going to happen if the body of Christ isn't trying to realize that they have the fullness of Christ. That is the end game. It's not to say, ooh, I'm a gifted person. Oh, I'm a great church planner. Oh, I'm a great prophet. Oh, I'm a great evangelist. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Jesus probably puking up there thinking about that. What he's saying is this is the body of Christ. The fullness of Christ. You say, Mark, but the body of Christ just run out. Yes, it did. So you go and you pour. Christ has always got something going. He keeps on pouring. Probably going to break my flipper that doesn't work half the time anyway. Keeps on fullness of Christ. You say, well, what happens to the fullness of Christ? Guess what? When you do the ministry of Christ and the fullness of Christ, Christ keeps us going, doesn't he? he he's got more. And so he, he just takes it. He reuses it. Keeps on going. Keeps on going. But you know what? If we just sit down, we're not going to saturate anything. We need to be saturating our homes, our workplaces, everywhere we're at, our schools, our playgrounds with the ministry of Christ. So what is the end game? Well, Paul tells us. Paul tells us the end game, and I'll just give it to you here real quick. Here's the goal. I talk a lot about wins. What is a win for a church? The win of the church is unity of the faith. Faith of what? Faith that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church and we are gifted by God to make a difference in our community. Knowledge of the Son of God. I know a lot. Again, I went to seminary. I've studied Greek. I've spent like three, four years in Greek, two years in Hebrew. I am... I'm still a baby in my knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. We need to understand who Christ is. And I, I love to grow and to learn and to experience, not just because that's the way I'm wired, but because that's what, it, what life is all about. Just think about it. Some people say, I'll just wait to heaven. I don't know if I shared this when I was doing the funeral um, last Monday. Um, I had everybody coming up to me. I'm, I'm the pastor, and whenever I'm a pastor in a crowd, ask the pastor a question. And so I was getting asked all these questions, and you know, since my dad, it was a second marriage, and the, uh, after my mom died, and she had two marriages, it's like, who's she gonna be married to in heaven? Great question. I wanted to say, if you read your Bible, you'd know the answer, but I didn't. I was very kind. I said, well, Jesus said, there's no marriage in heaven. And then I went and I talked about some other ideas and concepts. we got to continue till, till we're all on the same page in growing and understanding who Jesus Christ is. But get this. There's a maturity. Whenever maturity is talked about in the Greek language, it's always talked about in time. It's talking about completion. It's talking about finishing the circle. It's be mature it's full again it's the full measure for the fullness of Christ 
And again, that's where the lava cake is. If you don't like lava cakes, cheesecake factory, whatever, that's where it's at. But it's not going to happen if the body of Christ is not focused in on the fullness of Christ and keeping the process moving on down the line. So what is your next step? Mine's going to be to dry off my Bible, okay? I need a new one anyways. Paul says, the way we live out our calling is for us to be patient with one another, kind to one another, gentle with each other. We need to strive because this fullness of Christ is all that Christ Christ is all in on the fullness of Christ. And it starts with our attitude. I've been around church a long time. I've mentioned my father-in-law is a pastor. And one church he pastored in Ohio, there was a guy that sat in the back row. His name was Harry. And they called him the peanut man because he always had peanuts. And he'd give it to dogs and kids. And he always had peanuts. Thankfully, McKenzie wasn't around at this time because I would have said, dude, I'm going to punch you if you give her a peanut. But anyways, he would sit in the back row and is there, whenever something was going on in the service, or if he didn't like how people were singing, attitude check. And I say, it begins with you, buster. No, but, uh, but he would yell, attitude check. I'm like, what's he, you know what? Sometimes maybe, maybe he had the gift of prophecy or exhortation or something like that. But it begins with an attitude. And we all can use an attitude adjustment. But we're not going to get to the fullness of Christ if our attitude isn't there. It's so important. As I was coaching and getting Mason in bed, and it was after a practice, and it was last Thursday night's practice, and some of the kids were fighting and all this stuff, and they were yelling and calling each other names. And thankfully, God answered that by the time we played on Saturday. But we go to bed, and I don't know why Mason was in there, but he was in Ephesians 4, where he's saying, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for others, and that your words should be seasoned with grace. He's like, Dad, I think our team needs that. I'm like, no, duh. And then he said, I think the church needs that. No, I didn't say, no, he didn't say that. But we, we all, we all need that. We need to do whatever it takes to keep unity. And what destroys it is bickering and fighting and lack of being patient and forgiving and encouraging one another. That all goes in. But it's not just an attitude check. It's an application. It is an application of God's Word. I love it that my Bible's wet. Because it's not just to be on a shelf, you know, I got that when I was confirmed. I got a Bible in a box with my name on it, April 27, 1980. It's still in the box. That's not what a Bible is for. A Bible is to be read and applied. The reason God gifted you is not so you can put it in a box, or as Jesus said, that you can bury it but so that you can use it for the fullness 